0: I think it often puts us into this lovely, sort of dream-like state. And I think our bodies slow down, our minds slow down. It's a contemplative state. We're drawn into listening to rivers. Contemplative experiences open us up to all sorts of ideas and associations uh, which we don't have time for in the normal flow of the day's activities.
1: There are certain points in the day when an unease can settle over you, when you just can't get comfortable in body or in mind. As the dusk begins its fall, or as you lie alert in the dread hours of the morning, your thoughts can turn to deeper things than the ins and outs of the day.
2: I like to wake up when everyone's asleep, so That can be 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, I like the dark hours when I can be alone. There's all these electronic signals that are winding around your brain from outside and so forth. And the, the feeling, especially when I was in New York, of a lot of activity and... There are hours when there is less activity, and I like those hours. I like to be alone, just with myself. I need peace and quiet, I can't be interrupted. Being interrupted is one of the most painful experiences that an individual can have who is thinking deeply about a situation. This time signals the virtual death of everybody but myself, and I like it that way.
3: Time and timelessness are connected. This instant and eternity are struggling within us, and this is the cause of all our contradictions, our obstinacy and narrow-mindedness, our faith and our grief. Arvo Pert.
1: These are the times when those helpful distractions of the day dematerialize. You may encounter a free-floating anxiety about the wars we fight or horrific accidents and appalling injustices. There are two things that get me that way, abused and lost children and the environments we willfully lay to waste. At these times, when I think of these things, I can almost feel the earth turning, time slipping past, and the inevitability of everything passing, myself, my family, and the environment in which we live. Loss and fate loom large. I
4: think... At nighttime the human body it's waves of energy change. Everything starts collapsing inward. At sometimes you feel so fragile and frail, you're on the cusp of something. I keep on referring to liminal, that liminal state, that point of just before falling asleep or point of departure or anything. It's that point that fascinates me, but it fascinates me especially when the I suppose the human body does tend to slow down and get that quietness about it. So, I suppose as a a person in his 50s and seeing off a few of his relatives as they've passed on, there are different points in the evening that mean different things for me. One of the points is around the 4 a.m. mark it's a really quite a strange point in, in your consciousness. And quite often I will wake up briefly, and, but think about things like mortality. Remember my, my father's passing. But it's also beautiful. The silence becomes quite an active player. On, you can have a dialogue with silence. So I find myself naturally transported to that point in the clock. I think that's such a charged moment. The midnight is a liminal state. It's passing from one day into the next.
1: I like the idea of liminal. Liminal is like the twilight. It's neither day nor night. Rivers are liminal. They flow in between. The solstice is a planetary liminal moment as the Earth pauses on its axis before returning on itself, changing the balance of day and night. And at these points, all bets are off. And I like that. We can think laterally. And because this frame of mind inspires profound human emotion, it's no surprise there's music to express it, giving voice to the depths of despair. It's lifting into hope and playing even with the fabric of time. Nick Chavos is a double bass player whose work has been engaging with these ideas through improvisation and whose piece, Liminal, which you're hearing now, was recently performed in Hobart at midnight.
4: I mean, as improvising musicians, I think your senses sharpen up, you know, like the tendrils reach out, so you pick up on the guys you're playing with.
1: So there's a both drawing in, Mm. but also a looking out from that inwardness, is that what you're saying?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's because everything just sharpens up. As a musician, you have to be able to construct that at any time. I mean, I've done liminal at 10 in the morning, totally different experience, still uh, beautiful. I and mean, we had, I don't know, sixteen, eighteen hundred 1,800 people in this amphitheatre in Birmingham, just quiet. And I will still do liminal at six o'clock in the afternoon. And I will still have to work hard to try to construct these moments to make sense for us. But it's an easy fit at midnight, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ania Lockwood is an expat New Zealand composer of both instrumental music and sound recordings who began her adventurous career when she moved to the experimental and vibrant music scene of 1960s London. Ania is known for her sound maps of several rivers. When you think about it, those ultimately liminal, in-between zones, geographically, socially, culturally, environmentally and politically, In 1982, she mapped the Hudson. In 2005, she released her Years in the Making map of the River Danube. And Ania's work asks us to think about the big picture by listening to the smaller one.
0: I've thought for a long time... Uh, Really, ever since working in the 60s and then more strongly convinced of the sense that that there's a sort of double focus that goes on when we're listening to water sounds. They're so complex, aren't they? I mean, the rhythms, the the way pitch patterns form and dissolve, the layers and layers of pitch and rhythm patterns in, in the sound of flowing water, it's not literal repetition. What I, myself, hear anyway is a seeming repetition in which the details keep shifting. And that is what I think is so fascinating about these sounds for us and what puts us into a, this floating state in a way, um, or immersion. I think of it as a state of immersion myself, actually. I think the repetition sort of lulls the part of our mind which is always seeking new stimulus. What's happening next? What's going to happen next? And the... Detail within what appears to be a repetitious st- structure keeps our brains engaged. So we're sort of working on those two levels.
1: The Hudson River map was about Ania wanting to reintroduce New Yorkers to a river they loved but couldn't bodily experience. Twenty years later, the Danube found her asking a different question
0: What is a river? And um, what is its being? What is its nature? It, that's what I'm interested in with all the phenomena, sounds I've been working with lately. What is the nature or the being of this phenomenon? So I didn't feel I'd come anywhere close to giving myself an answer to that, working on the Hudson. I thought I could do better so and get closer.
1: It doesn't take too long when you travel down a river to find a reason to pause. Grief is never too far from the banks, which can literally run dark with blood. Terrible massacres, terrifying individual violences, the transport of weeds and toxic chemicals. The landscape of a river makes it very easy for wrong to come to bear. And so the river is as much a reason to pause for thought as falling dusk or the small hours of the morning. And in Novi Sad, on the Danube's banks, Anir found a music teacher who talked about the NATO bombings of the three bridges, which cut the two halves of the town, one from the other. She started talking about the effects on her
0: and on the local people of the bombing, which were very dark, and how a friend of hers was a a doctor working at a local hospital under the worst of conditions with water collected in a barrel, no electricity. I mean, uh, sterilization of instruments, very difficult. And, And she just laid this all out. And that aspect of the river's history or the human history, I prefer to call it along the river, you know, just came into focus immediately.
1: How did you accompany that story sonically?
0: A little west of Novi Sad, I found a spot down by the river in which there was a huge oil drum, it looked like an oil drum, anchored to the shore and it was being used as a dock by fishermen who would tie their boats up to it. There were holes in the top of the drum, you could walk onto it, and stuck my ear down next to one of those holes and there were the most amazing resonances inside. They were coming from both the action of waves on the river and the boats gently hitting against the side of the drum. Amazing sounds. And I could stick my mic down the hole, which was really wonderful. (laughs) That was the site nearest to Gisela Beber Ivkovic's interview. And of course, those booms that come from the drum, do feel like and sound like reminiscent of bombardment but that actually literally was not why i put them together i put them together because it was literally the closest place i recorded (laughs) to where i talked with her for the danube i came to feel that the human beings uh, living along and from the river were as much a part of the riparian environment as the trees, the fish, the aquatic insects, the geese, the horses along, tethered along the river, the kids, the human presence was, was just an integral part of all of that life which is generated by the river itself.
1: Some distance north of the headwaters of the Danube, on the Baltic Sea, lies Estonia, a country which is perpetually aware of the Earth's turning, with its long days and nights according to the seasons. Here lives the composer, Arvo Pert, whose work is arguably the most popular contemporary classical music on the planet. Pert is no stranger to grieving on an individual but also transcendent and religious scale. But to me at least, and I think to many others, it also places our grief in a context that it was ever thus. And I find that really comforting. He said,
3: I have written a lamento, not for the dead, but for us, the living, who have the difficulty of dealing with the suffering and despair of the world.
1: Andrew Shenton is editor of the Cambridge Companion to Arvo Pert and associate professor of music at Boston University.
5: What I think personally is that his music doesn't contain as much of the information of the signs that are in Western music in people like Mozart and Beethoven that we've come to understand as classical music. And so I think he allows people much more time for reflection and time to bring themselves into the piece, um, staring at the void of your own personality or um, encouraging yourself to be at one with the grief that you're experiencing, whatever these emotions are. There's a critic called Robert Schwartz who summarized very early on in 1980 when Pet was just becoming famous in America, said that this emotional intensity, the quiet strength and simplicity, the meditative rapture, brought a fleeting moment of repose to our hectic lives. And I think that's a, a way that Pet has found a voice as a composer, and that, that's actually really what he does. The critic Alex Ross noted that several people have described to him how this sort of still sad music, as he put it, um, became for them a a vehicle of solace or a vehicle of um, expression. And Ross's comment was that if one or two people said it, you would think, "Okay, well, that's interesting. But when everybody says it, you realise that there's something of a phenomenon going on here.
1: I'd like to talk about one of his compositions in particular, the cantus, Memoriam Benjamin Britten. Silence is a frame for that piece and it's composed into it. But then what happens in between is tremendously lush. He uses only the pitches of a single A minor scale, I think, in a constant descent.
5: It's one of his most well-known pieces, and during the period when he was in reflection about the way his musical career was going and how he wanted to be a composer, he studied a lot of early music, a lot of plain chant, a lot of composers like Machaut. And so the piece, um, Cantus in Memory of Benjamin Britten, uh, has a sort of mathematical genius to it that is hidden by actually the lushness of, of hearing it, as you rightly say. It's what in musical terms we call a mensuration canon, which means that one um, instrumental line starts playing uh, a line of music at one speed, and another one plays it at half the speed, and another one plays it at half that speed. And the piece is over once the last set of instruments, in this case strings and a bell, have played through the entire canon. There is this sort of idea that the piece is both incredibly still and incredibly calm that can embody different types of grief or other emotions, but at the same time it's constantly moving within itself. It's like sort of iridescent cloud that is able to capture a lot of human emotions within just this single piece.
1: The bodily anguish in the music of Greek-American singer Diamonde Galas is the polar opposite to Arvo Pet's soaring meditations on grief. Her music's a powerfully controlled wail of rage and fear and despair, a kind of exorcism through a five-octave range which would summon the devil himself if Diamonde believed in supernatural beings. This is a howl of the body in extremis. A major work of hers was The Plague Mass, about AIDS in the days when this disease provoked worldwide terror of an extended and brutal death. And she performed her intense new piece, Das Fieberspittel, in Hobart, transfixing, if not impaling, the audience. It's a setting of a poem by German writer George Heim, Written just before the First World War. It was a very,
2: very heightened time of industrialization for Germany. And because of that, everything changed. Everything had its own, let's say, warehouse. So there were warehousing for certain industrial tools, and as well, there were warehouses for humans. Warehouses for humans who were severely disabled warehouses for humans who were mentally disabled warehouses therefore for human with things like yellow fever and so the poem takes place in the room which houses people with yellow fever who are in the end stages Life and death were much closer together in the sense that disease, dying, and death were openly on display in the middle of the street, whereas in my country, these elements are generally housed where no one can see them. For example, you have returning military from the various wars, and they are put in clinics where no one can see them, just as the World War II veterans were never seen again, and they were warning in each other, do not say that you are experiencing any mental problem because you'll be shut up for life. The themes that I deal with, including isolation, forcible or by choice, return in my works. And I think that anyone reading the Yellow Fever poem, Das Fieber would be able to see analogs between that, my AIDS work and Plague Mass. And I return to these themes because I feel, uh, I don't know, I feel magnetized by them, and it may be seen by others as a limitation, but I'm okay with that.
1: These are moments of heightened feeling you're exploring when you're in a state of sickness, you're hospitalised or imprisoned. And there are times when everything's at its rawest and you're kind of in between normal life and death. When a person is in
2: extreme isolation and suddenly is speaking only to himself and doesn't believe anyone else will hear him or her. and is driven to this extremely loud declamation of calling to a god invented by despair. I've used the expression before, but it's it's the only one that I think is apt for the emotion. That's what I mean. It's as if you're so far on the outside that
1: you speak only to yourself. I wanted to ask you about the breath, which is such an interesting and powerful indicator of the grief and the inner emotion of a person. And you play with these sounds quite carefully. What do you do with the breath and how do you include it as part of your style and your performance? Well, the state of not
2: breathing is death. And what I do is an extreme extroversion, let's say, of, well, a person could say in a prosaic sense, of the soul. Let's say that I'm going to use that expression. So you're modulating the breath so that you can get through long a very long phrase. You're inhaling, and then, as I say, you're modulating the exhalation. So you can do a lot of sounds on the top of the breath, or some of them Must be done just fully, even very close to the vocal cords, in the sense that we don't, singers don't like to do that, but it becomes necessary to get a sound.
1: Reading the text of Das Fieberspittel, Diamonde uses a particular kind of vocal technique coined in the expressionist period, Sprechstimme, or spoken song. It can be incredibly formal in the way that the expressionists used it, and as you'll hear in opera as well. But you'll also recognise it from cabaret and jazz, and Diamonde slips between all these vocal styles in her work. In the case of
2: Das Fieberspital, the German words, each of them, is so important. There has to be a very clean enunciation. And also, we're located in a room in which every patient's actions are governed by nurses as punishers, by people who are hired to come in, drag the bodies out of the bed that are near death and dump them on a boat that goes out to sea. And there are many different horrors like the clumped gigantic spiders hanging from the ceiling whose sap runs down onto the bellies of the patients uh, marking their death. There is such an exactness in all the words that the words must be declaimed very, very clearly. And at other times, let's say, very rapidly, but still very clearly, and at other times, let's say, with a slight modification of the articulation to sound more inward, like a thought, you know, and so then in that case, there's a more of the sprechgesang, you know, and so this is a very interesting part of my work because you asked me, you must have an interesting weave between the sprechstimme, the operatic singing, and the more what one would call the avant-garde uses of the voice. And that's indeed true, and one must really know what he or she is doing to, to make those slides, because in general, most people do one of the three, but not all three. And that's because it's difficult to make those negotiations.
1: I I think that style brings us closer to the dead as well, in that it's a deeply ritualistic style of performance. Yes, it immediately invokes ritual, which to give the dying and the dead their due, to pay them respect, you need that rituals. And sprechstimme is a brilliant way of expressing that.
2: It, it is especially in the context of the liturgical-style poem, the cadence, which was explored by Baudelaire, and Haim was very interested in, in that cadence and used it himself. And also in parts of the Old Testament, we see this kind of Alexandrian sonnet form, you know. But the rhythm is always part of death rituals. The rhythm, the melody, the shriek inescapably, and these are the poems that I feel compelled to do. Even if the content is absolutely compelling, without a very powerful rhythmic structure, I find myself not interested in it. And sometimes I have to find it by reading a poem over and
1: over again. It strikes me that the dead don't go quietly, they have to push through somehow. So when you channel that level of energy, as Diamonda does, the niceties just disappear. Some of Diamond's work was based on the cursed tablets of ancient Greece, which were buried in graves and are related in a way to the Miraloya, the potent ancient songs which come literally from beside the grave in northern Greece. <laughs> My
2: mother's side of the family are from Mani, which is near Sparta. I don't sing precisely that tradition, but it's very close. It's very related. And uh, I was singing this way for many years until my mother said, What is this? You're singing the Loya." And I said, What are you talking about? And she had to let me know the relationship between what I was doing and, and the Loya. I didn't know it. But when I hear these women sing... It's not so much singing. I would not know how to define it, really, because it's kind of singing. It's a kind of song-like form, but it's more based on a, a wail, a cry, as if a person were crying. And this type of singing was really looked down upon by philosophers and Plato and so forth, it was looked down upon as bringing emotion that should not be brought to the surface, an undisciplined woman's work, you know.
1: And what do you think of that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can only say, uh, write about what scares you most, dear.
1: You're with Into the Music on RN with me, Gretchen Miller and we're talking about music of loss, of grief, of meditation and of consolation. In Melbourne, Nick Chavos has also tapped into the Miraloya tradition for inspiration, but his is quite a different approach.
4: I was trying to explain to somebody the other day how something as simple as availability of land to bury your dead can culturally inform and develop a richness in song. In that part of Greece, where the land is short and is valuable, they only bury the dead for five years. And then dig them up at the fifth year, they clean the bones and bless them, and then they wrap up and put in an ossuary. But in that the five years, the widows go off and tend to their the graves, and they sing these songs, very, 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 very difficult songs to listen to. I mean, I once saw a clip of a, a solitary clarinetist playing some of this music while this widow and her children dug up her husband and with their hands. I were digging through the dirt and finding all the shards of bone. Uh, and I thought, that is such an important part of dealing with life. It is not entertainment. This is something more profound and more connected to the reality of our existence. So, you know, even though I don't pretend to work at that level, I resonate very, very strongly from that point. If I can do something that even approaches that tangentially, and then I'm, you know, very, very happy. I couldn't possibly appropriate that music. I've heard my mother and my relatives, my, the women sing. The, the, these songs are called Miruloya. They are sung very much on the passing of people and. I, I wouldn't appropriate, I can only, what I do is use the texts and resonate from it. It is not a, a song of comfort. It is a conduit to express their despair, their grief, their rage. One of the works I used, is cry for me mother. I used a, a very old piece of Byzantine chant which is actually celebrating the birth of Christ. And over that, I extrapolated the melodies and text of the dead person asking her mother to cry for her. I've left you three glasses of poison. One, to drink in the morning, two in the afternoon, three, to drink with your pain at night as you go to bed. Water my flowers with your tears. So really quite harsh, not consoling, but also dealing with the realities of uh, death.
1: What attracts you to the mirror it,
4: it is a two-edged sword. I mean, in the sense that I am attracted to it as much as I rather wish i never heard it. The potency of what's occurring amazes. You have to go back to Medea, that sort of archetypal woman the rage, as well as the grief, I suppose most of our life we can go around skirting this stuff until it lands on your lap and having to deal with a father passing, my uncles and stuff like that. I realised that one of my works was the, the same rhythm as my, my uncle's last breaths. I'm not being glib about it, but it's not conscious. It's a horrible thing to say. Oh, I'm of the age now that they expect me to be around the bedside when. Relatives pass, and it's.
1: I can imagine it becomes embodied. Yeah. Your body takes that as you mm. connect powerfully with someone as they pass, yeah. and then you're a musician.
4: Well, yeah, that's my excuse. Uh, so, this stuff that I'm doing has only been the stuff of my ad- adulthood, you know, coming to terms with things that, you know, as a youngster, you don't have to really. I'd rather skate around, please. <laughs> yeah, so, yes.
1: Can you give me a bit of background, your musical background? Uh, what informs your interest in these burial songs?
4: I was brought over in 1959 from northern Greece, a place called Yanina, And for the first th- three or four years, the only music I really heard was the records they brought over with them, which is Iperotica. Again, they take church chants and modes of the Byzantine church. They put it to dance rhythms. Those burial songs are also built on the same material. The same material just gets used and used over and over again.
1: The same harmonic material?
4: Yes, and modal material, because there's not that many chords flying about. (laughs) In the Byzantine music, they split the octave into 72. In the 20th century, okay, they started using harmony, but prior to that, it was strictly modal, you know.
1: Could you play me one of those modes on Uh, your bass? yeah.
4: I mean, what they do is the church only allows eight of those modes. So that's all the orthodox music is based on eight of all the possible modes.
1: What mode is that that you're playing with
4: there? I was playing around with the soft chromatic mode. In Rebetica, they would call it Hijaz-Skyah. The the, the sort of... um, ..that sort of sound, you know? You know, very Middle Eastern-y sort of two tetrachords, a semitone, an augmented second, another semitone, the first tetrachord, then a tone apart. the same thing repeats...
1: So these modes are used in the church but then in the fields when you're digging up the bones
4: mm.
1: you would have a whole other musical language, I imagine.
4: They use the pentatonic uh, a lot. They use aspects of the church mode that are broken down, a simplified, yeah, much more syllabic.
1: Because that pentatonic is quite a different sound and much more simple. You're talking about five notes, of course, yeah, penta. Yeah.
4: But, but, I mean, it's sort of like the minor pentatonic as opposed to the... Mm.
1: In the context of the time of day or the time of night in which you perform, you've also talked about stillness and static tension and how music can keep us suspended and mess around with time.
4: When I play, quite often what I'm trying to do is find a way into a state. And how do I get there? You know, is it by playing long notes or soft notes? I think I remember I connected to um, Gurdjieff, that Armenian philosopher, And he devised a lot of these really quite complicated movements that people go through. And it looks like incredibly complex, but as you draw away from it, it's really quite still. I quite like doing that when I'm playing something really frenetic on the instrument. But you almost get a stroboscopic effect where suddenly all the activity recedes and you just get this slower cycle coming out of it. You're actually finding the stillness that's in there. Now those last two things was there all the time, these shapes, these other shapes, they're masking it. And then gradually you sort of work to push the the activity aside and just let the, the pulse underneath it become the dominant aspect.
1: As Nick Chavos creates a sense of harmonic stillness, so does Arvo Pert his technique which generates this sense of soaring and suspension is a deliberately devised new harmonic language for the end of the 20th century he called it tintinnabuli because it reminded him of sounding bells and its philosophical underpinning is precisely to allow space for the liminal
5: But what he essentially does is he takes a single melodic line and accompanies it with a line that is a triad, the first, third, and fifth notes of a scale in Western music. And by putting these two things together, he creates this extraordinary music that allows people to bring much of themselves to it because it is both full of content and without content.
1: Because of its simplicity?
5: Because of its simplicity, yes. And his wife, Nora, made a comment that is, I think, extremely important to understanding this idea of tintinnabulation. So it's one melodic voice and one voice that we call a tintinnabuli or the bell voice. And she said that these things are so closely tied together that one... plus one one equals one. The melodic voice and the bell-like voice actually come together to form a whole and that sort of universal resonance is important to this idea of this bringing you into a liminal state and having both content and no content.
1: Pet spent a long time thinking about and studying the single melodic line, and I believe he wrote an awful lot of them before he came up with that notion of tinted and, and how to work it. Uh, I'm really interested in that idea of the single melodic line and the power of, of it. You can sing it but it's not a melodic line as we know it.
5: He bases it on plain song which is an always singable kind of music and it has a small vocal range so it's within the possibilities for for people being able to sing. But he he has some very interesting sort of philosophical ideas that make the idea of having a single melodic line and a bell line that accompanies it slightly more interesting. Um, He's managed to find a really interesting oral soundscape for himself. But he describes the melodic voice as always signifying the subjective world. He describes it as the daily egoistic life of sin and suffering. And he considers the bell voice, the triadic Tintinabuli part, the realm of forgiveness. And he says the melodic voice may appear to wander, but it's always held in place by this tintinnabuli voice. And he quotes, and I'm, this is a direct quote from him, this can be likened to the eternal dualism of body and spirit, heaven and earth. But the two voices are in reality one voice, a twofold single entity.
1: little bit about how harmonically tintinnabuli works, and we can talk about you know the one four five progression of classical music. We can talk about the twelve uh, tone democracy of high serialism. We can talk about the repetitive nature of minimalism. What are the harmonic structures that you look at when you're looking at Arvo Pärt?
5: He actually has quite a lot, maybe 40 different sort of intervals that are either highly dissonant like a major seventh or a minor second or very consonant like a perfect fifth. And the secret to his writing is to be able to manipulate in very sophisticated ways, this movement from tension to relaxation on both macro and micro scales. And in one of the very first pieces that he wrote in this new tintinnabuli style called Fur Alina, he's able to do this with great intensity. You can just hear after a long low B in the piano part, that there are these extraordinarily slow moving harmonies where one of the parts is just playing the notes the B minor triad and the other melodic part quite a distance from it in terms of pitches just plays this wonderful slow melodic line. You mentioned rightly that we are very used to the 5-1 progressions, the dominant tonic cadences of so-called classical music, and particularly of the Haydn-Mozart-Beethoven tradition and, and the followers of that. And of course rock and roll, and we're very satisfied by hearing 5-1 as a progression. We feel good by getting back to 1. None of that applies to uh, Arvo Pett's music. It's a, such a new vocabulary that it doesn't rely on that donic dominant relationship. It sets up its own intrinsic and inherent properties of tension and relaxation. Again, this is why he's a man of remarkable genius.
1: While Arvo Pert is deeply religious and most of his compositions refer to sacred Christian texts, you don't have to have a religion to enter the frame of mind our guests are exploring. Anyone can experience this sense of connection, of being in tune with larger processes than our own daily lives. Ania Lockwood describes her engagement with the environment as a kind of embeddedness.
0: It really arises out of my New Zealand childhood exposure to the natural environment which was a powerful exposure and it's my conviction that as humans we're not separate from the planet, the world's phenomena, we're deeply integrated with those phenomena. We don't always remember that and we tend to too often to see the world as a set of resources which are arising from a sort of willed separation which is very destructive, But What I've been trying to do, I guess, with my environmental work for a long time, without always being able to spell it out quite so clearly, in wanting to immerse people deeply inside the sounds that I work with so that they feel how those sounds are moving through their bodies, feel their bodies immersed in them, in wanting that I'm trying to come to this sense of non-separation. Your body is being inundated with this sound's energy, it's responding to it, it loves it. You're not separate from that. Therefore, you're not separate from the sun, for example, or from Mount Kilauea or, you know, the other energies I've been working with lately. Ania's
1: 1975 piece, World Rhythms, has nothing to do with world music, but was, in fact, one of the first widely heard pieces of environmental music using only recorded natural sounds. She's recently returned to these ideas with Wild Energy, an installation which taps into the internal mechanics of the Earth and the solar system.
0: With world rhythms, my floating concept was that, actually, if we had large enough ears and brains, we would hear all those different, seemingly disparate rhythms as layers within one enormous rhythm. And my concept and Bob Belecki's concept with wild energy is that those are the enormous rhythms (laughs) of the planet and down to some small ones, the size of bats. And these phenomena are generating energies that are just coursing through our bodies all the time, uh, unawares and inaudible to us because they're outside our hearing range. So let's bring them into the hearing range and listen to them for a while and being aware that they're actually moving in our bodies both ways, both in their normal register and in in the registers we shifted them into so you could hear them.
1: Like a sort of cocoon. I asked Ania when she first experienced this idea of being deeply connected with the world's phenomena. And she remembered a hillside in the Moselle Valley back in her student days. I remember
0: sitting on a hillside there and picking up a stone, and stones have been a fascination for me for many, many years, most of my life. Picking up a stone and the thought going through my mind, can I sense what this stone feels, what it is? Can I sense it, its interior energy? And working really hard at that was something I kept coming back to that summer. So t- trying to enter into the existence of a completely Different and apparently impenetrable thing, you know.
1: Diamonde Galas, Arvo Peart and Ania Lockwood, each in their way, hope that on hearing their work there'll be some kind of response that becomes a practical one, that we'll wake up and move on our beliefs.
3: People here are very sleepy. They're satiated with so many things. Everything is available to them. People have no worries and become very passive. What activity there is, is of a superficial kind, a bodily activity, a sort of aggression. One must be active and above all, not hibernate like a bear. But all this activity is not really pure or full of life. It is not linked to the spirit. I've
5: He has a very sort of strange relationship with Estonia because he had such bad experiences during the time that the Soviets were there and actually only managed to get out just before the borders were closed. In 1980, I mean, literally, apparently, the day or two before the borders closed, he he was uh, liable to get trapped there and went to Germany as a refugee. I think it's important to remember that Pet spent a significant part of his life in a Soviet state, and that's obviously had a profound impact on him, and that he's also engaged in human rights, so he's well aware of uh, his own and the suffering of others. And he feels that his music is born out of a kind of suffering. He feels he has to reinvent it all the time and he has to search for a germinal cell out of which the music can arise. And he he also has some fairly forthright ideas about the modern world. And he, he thinks that people are sleepy and satiated and they have everything available to them. And he thinks that there's a sort of spiritual repose and a spiritual depth that they need to acquire that he hopes, might be able to be acquired through his music. He hopes that God, his God, will be pleased with his music. But he does also hope that in times of grief, in liminal spaces, in the twilight in two o'clock in the morning, when you're alone, even if you're with others, that this music is comforting in some way. Uh, And I personally think it is.
2: I think the activism comes out of it, you know what I mean? I think you first start with a very severe psychological state and then you move onwards in your understanding of, let's say, the period of time in which this transpired, Uh, but at the same time you realize it's a timeless situation and then at that point the activism can begin. I'm hoping or aiming to work
0: in such a way that the listener feels no distance between herself and the sound source, but rather feels immersed in the sound, you know, inside the sound. And then from that you can maybe come to a process of not exactly identifying with the sound, but the associational processes with that phenomenon which can arise, and from there you can move into working on the environment, but none of my installations really arise out of a sense of, as an act of mourning. None of them are. This phenomenon, it's extraordinarily alive. It's totally beautiful. It's life-giving. Dive into it and feel one with it and then see where that leads you. With luck, it'll lead you into working on natural preservation methods for riverbanks. I mean, with luck, the thinking expands on out into practical issues. Uh, We hope. (laughs)